1: He e tēnei nā te reo o Aotearoa.
0: I was kept in the dark a lot about her situation. My nan was, she never really spoke about it around us. There's little things that I remember, but not
1: special things, you know, no real memories. Chanel York was only three years old when her mother Judith disappeared 25 years ago on Wednesday, October 21st, 1992. Her mother dropped her off at her parents' house in Tepuke before heading out for some drinks with friends that night. Judith, also known as Judy, was 25 years old at the time. She was last seen at a party at an orchard shed in Matapihi in the early hours of the morning. The family were immediately worried when she didn't call the next day. They went looking for her. When she didn't show up for Chanel's fourth birthday a week later, the family knew something was definitely wrong.
0: All I know is pictures and just snippets of what people are saying. Like if they went into details, you know, your eyes are like your mum or your hair is like your mum, I would
1: feel more closer to her, I guess. Many birthdays have come and gone since then, and that little girl is all grown up. But still wants to know where her mother is. I'm Paloma Migoni, and this is a second episode of The Lost, a podcast looking into some of the country's missing persons' cases and talking to the families about the void left behind. (laughs) This is Judy and Chanel's story. Can you say hello? Please say hi. Chanel York is twenty-nine years old now, and her mother herself. She's playing in the backyard with her 18-month-old daughter, Gospel. The toddler has just woken up from her nap, and after several attempts at making her laugh, she finally cracks one. (laughs) (laughs) Chanel, like her mother, was born and raised in Tepuke. I first contacted Chanel several months ago. She was immediately interested in talking to me about Judy. But I'm not going to lie. Right now, I'm surprised I'm here. We first spoke in August. When I rang her again about a month later, things had changed. You see, four weeks before I met Chanel at her home, her fiancé, Kyron, Gospel's dad, died. I didn't know when I accidentally called her on the day she buried him. My heart sank for her as she gave me the details over the phone. It was a motorcycle accident not far from their home. But Chanel was still determined to talk to me about Judy. Now more than ever, she told me. So I'm here with Judy's daughter and granddaughter.
0: People asked me, why didn't I name Gospel after my mum? I was like, no. Mm-hmm. If I had a son, his name was going to be Jude but not a girl. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that name, but I've noticed, like, my grandfather, his sister's name was Judith or Judy. She passed away young, and then my mum passed away young, so I don't know if there's a connection, but that was just my thought. Maybe I overthought it, but, you know.
1: Why did you choose gospel in the end? Because it means good news, and she was my good news. After Judy went missing, Chanel was raised by her grandparents, Willie and Jane, or Koro and Nana, she calls them. Her older brother, Joseph, was already living with them at the time. Chanel tells me the little she knows about her mother has been collected through snippets gathered over the years, adults talking around the dinner table while she walked past. But she wouldn't ask too much about her, as she could see how painful it was for her nan. You can tell she was heartbroken, you know? She'd have
0: moments, like on my mum's birthday... I would walk in the kitchen and she would look out the window and be like, Happy birthday, Jude. If you would talk about my mum, her eyes would water up. Um, if I ask questions, she won't go into too much detail. You can see she was hurting. She would say so much and then she will shut down
1: or she would shake, you know, she would get really upset. The little Chanel remembers of her mother is triggered by certain things, like a perfume she smells. Crocodile lollies come to mind. We're simply looking at gospel and realising she will never meet her grandmother. There's some of Judy and Chanel too. She'll say something and a family friend or relative will point out her mother's mannerisms in her.
0: If I do something, they'll be like, oh, you know, that's just like what your mum used to do. Or yeah. or even my mum's friends, when we meet up with them, they'll see resemblances and just things that I do that remind them of them. I don't know what they are. Apparently I look very similar to her. Um, I think I'm a lot bigger than her though. She was a really dainty little woman. I feel bad because I can't really feel anything about it. What do you mean when you don't, you don't feel anything? You mean like you don't feel sad about it? Well, it's not that I don't feel sad. I just don't...
1: I've just accepted it, I guess. Chanel says it's a lack of knowledge that has made it difficult to have an emotional connection with her mother. For her... Calling Judy mum feels a bit weird. Just before her nan died of lung cancer, she gave Chanel some of Judy's things. It was mostly clothes, and Chanel donated them to a local op shop. She kept a little mirror, but it broke. There are no photos of Judy at Chanel's house. They're at her grandparents' house, but she tells me most are out of focus. Chanel does have one photo of her mother, but it's on her phone. It's one of Judy in a black and dark grey blouse and skirt. It looks like her hair is tied up and she has large golden earrings. But it's just an outline, a mere snapshot of a young woman who went out one night and never came home to her little girl. So who was Judy York? How did she come to be amongst the lost? Chanel introduces me to her aunt Tita. Judy's younger sister so I can learn more about her mother. I meet Tita near some rugby fields in Toranga, where Tita's son has been playing touch.
2: Oh, She had a kind heart. I think her um, daughter would have really loved her. She was clean, really spotless in the house. And Chani is the same but I think her mother was worse than she. <laughs> She's clean but her mother was really like fussy. Really fussy.
1: Did you guys get into a fights at all?
2: Yep, we used to fight a lot. If I say we didn't, I'll be lying. First of all, but we were close, really close. Tita smiles when she thinks of Judy.
1: Certain songs remind her of her sister. She loved Bob Marley. Any particular song? All of them, she tells me. But Tita also says Judy hung out with a different crowd. She had a different side to her a side the family didn't know about. You know, says Tita, like they said in the news. My guess is that she's referring to Judy working as a prostitute. Judy was close to her family. She would call her mum and sister every day. On the morning of October 21st, 1992, the day she was last seen, she rang Tira. She was planning a night out. Her long-term partner, Andrew, was in jail during this time. Judy had organised for her parents to look after Chanel. They lived just around the corner of her brick house in Te She got into a top in black jeans.
2: She came up to our mums and dads, actually, we all went up there. It was um, my younger sister's birthday, and she brought cakes in it, And we're all out on the step, and our families do all have a sit down and catch up, talking. And then she said she was off. Despite her young age, Chanel
1: also remembers that evening. It was cold and dark, she says. My name had those woolen, itchy blankets. They're really irritating,
0: they're ugly. And she wrapped me in it, and we said goodbye to my mum, and she left.
1: Later that evening, Tita had a feeling something was wrong. She woke up in the middle of the night, thinking of her sister.
2: I remember waking up and it was raining really hard and I said to my uh, partner, oh, what do you I think there's something wrong with my sister? And he goes to me, oh, go back to sleep, she's all right. And I said, no, I'm sure there's something wrong with you, I don't know, I just had this funny feeling. It's
1: hard to say whether three-year-old Chanel also had a feeling something had happened to Judy, but the next morning... All she wanted was her mum. I just remember
0: crying, screaming at the phone, asking my name to ring my mum. And my name was like, No, she's not here. She's not home yet. And she got annoyed because I just kept asking and asking for her to ring my mum. And she rang my mum and she gave me the phone and it just kept ringing. No one would answer.
1: Tita was also calling Judy's number. She went to her house to look for her sister. The pair were meant to go shopping that day, but no one was home.
2: And I went up to my dad, telling my father and my mother, and I started crying, and dad looked, and he goes, oh, I thought I could hear, hear her yelling out early in the morning. Mum said that there was nothing out there, because dad was saying, he said to mum, oh, I think I you know, can hear their kit. Mum goes, "No, nah, there's no one out there. Yeah, he woke up and had the same thing too. And I said to Mum, I'm sure there's something, you know, wrong with her. And Mum goes, "No, nah, she's all right.
1: Her mother did become more worried when Judy didn't ring that morning. She always rang her mother. Tita went back to her sister's house the next day with her father Willie and young Chanel. The little girl was pushed through a window to get inside. On the floor... She found Judy's keys. The house was a mess. This was not like Judy. It was Chanel's birthday a week later. Judy had planned a birthday party. She would have been there. She wasn't. Tita was sure something was wrong. Something had happened to her sister. The family called the police.
3: Just that it, there was, um, you know, a two-week delay in me being advised that there was a missing persons. You know, that, uh, that wasn't helpful at that particular time. So, you know, sort of mixed, really mixed emotions. This is
1: Alan Collin. He was in charge of the Tauranga Criminal the Investigation Project. Branch when Judy went missing. Not, you know, be, He's now uh, retired. When I ask him how long he worked the case nothing. for, he says 25 years. Weeks, you see, and, and it's never left him.
3: One of the first things I did was to actually um, go out and speak to the parents, um, you know, Jane and and Willie York. I remember sitting down in their lounge and and talking to them and when I'd been there for a very brief time, it it suddenly really dawned on me. I thought, well, you know, this is a girl that that hasn't just gone missing. You know, this is is a girl that uh, in high probability has been murdered.
1: The police and the family believed someone had done something to Judy she wouldn't walk out on her children. Tita says the family went to the police shortly after they found Judy's house in a mess, but they were turned away. When I ask Alan about this, he says he would be surprised and disappointed if true. The family went back to the police a week later, so why did it take two weeks for Alan to be called in?
3: My understanding is that, that uh, it was a week before um, Mum and Dad reported that Judy was missing and they just say so, re- reported it to the, to the local Te Puki, uh police station. Um, and, you know, to be honest, at that particular time, they wouldn't have done a lot on it, so I think they really would have perhaps done a few computer-type inquiries, um, may have um, spoken to, to a couple of people, and then suddenly after another week it probably dawned upon them that, hey, uh, you know, this, this may be a bit more serious than, than what we think, and that's when, um you know, they reported it up through the channels.
1: Alan was called in on November 4th. The next day, the police decided to launch a homicide investigation, 15 days after Judy was last seen. So what do we know about Judy's last whereabouts on October 21st, 1992? Alan says she got a phone call from a man named Aaron. He's a brother of her former partner. Remember Andrew? He was in jail during this time. Judy and Aaron were sleeping together. After she dropped off Chanel at her parents, Judy goes back home. She then drives her car, a white Honda Accord, to a hotel in Mount Manganui. About 11 o'clock, Alan says Judy Aaron and four others headed to Matapihi. They had planned to go to a marae there, but it was closed that night. So they headed down the road instead, to an orchard shed known to have music and booze. About 30 people were there.
3: We know that Judy was seen at one stage talking to a... A younger person that was in the tenants at this party, and seemed to be getting on particularly well with that person. It was suggested to us that perhaps uh, that that made another person a wee bit jealous. But um, there was certainly nothing reported to us in terms of any, you know, fights or altercations taking place.
1: Sometime between one and about half past two in the morning, Judy went outside. That's the last time anyone saw her. Her car was still in the same place she had parked it earlier. When it was time to leave, Alan says Aaron called out for her. Unable to find her, they decided to leave in her car.
3: One of the um, people that had travelled in the car found Judy's car keys underneath uh, the front doormat of the car. Other people told us that there was no way that Judy would ever leave her car keys in that position. And, that, that, uh, and we in fact had one, which is to say that uh, she believed that Judy had placed the uh, keys into her, to her handbag.
1: That black handbag has never been found. Based on witness accounts, Alan says the group that had arrived with Judy, including Erin, and another woman got in her car and left the orchard. Later that morning, he says Aaron and three others were in Judy's car, travelling around the mount. Alan says the drive included a trip to the orchard where the party had been held. Her car was later left outside her house in Tapuke, where it had been found by police. On Friday morning, two days after the party, Judy's muddy shoes were discovered at the orchard. The people who lived there say the shoes weren't there on the Thursday the day before. The shoes were given to one of the partygoers' girlfriends, placed in a plastic bag and left at someone's house several days before being given to police. Why weren't the shoes handed in immediately? Alan doesn't know. Maybe they didn't know they belonged to Judy. The people at the party were now witnesses, and the police interviewed them about Judy's whereabouts.
3: We very much reliant on witness accounts that, that were given to us and, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be quite blunt in terms of that. that you know, obviously a lot of the witnesses were, were keen to, to assist as much as they could but, I mean, there were other witnesses that uh, clearly um, had a history with the police and, and obviously weren't overly keen on helping the police and you've got to also understand that, that a lot of these people lived uh, the life of drinking and taking drugs.
1: Alan went back and interviewed them again. There were so many inconsistencies. He still thinks some of them never completely told the truth.
3: Clearly no one admitted, admitted uh, doing Judy any harm, and, and uh, you know, that's, uh, we, so we just ran into to really uh, a solid brick wall.
1: The police had suspects. They had one main suspect, who we've chosen to name for the first time. It's Aaron, Aaron Kumini, the man she was sleeping with, the brother of her former partner. Alan says the police look for motive and opportunity, and jealousy is a strong motive. I've tried to find Erin, but had no luck. I did, though, manage to find one of the other people from that night, who I've chosen not to name. She lives in Australia. My name's Paloma. I'm calling from Radio New Zealand. Oh, okay. Um, I'm doing a story on Judy York. Do you remember her?
0: Yeah, I
1: do. I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about what you remember that day, about that day. I
0: decline to talk. <laughs>
1: The police searched the Matapihi Peninsula. They had helicopters with heat detection gear and used ground-penetrating radar. Divers searched the water nearby. So many days had passed, they had a scene which was now contaminated and witnesses who had time to forget about what happened that day. Alan tells me he could never say with 100% certainty that one person was responsible for Judy's disappearance. But he reckons he's about 90% sure. Sure, there's a possibility she ran into a stranger while walking down the street after leaving the party. A truck driver reported seeing a woman walking on a road nearby. But the police were never able to confirm it was her. The police also looked into whether or not she went to Port of Toranga, where she sometimes worked. That didn't provide any leads. Could she have left the country? She had no passport. And police ruled out the possibility of her getting on a ship. Judy's car was also forensically tested. The police tracked down other partygoers' cars, but again, no clues. Her shoes were examined. Alan says the police found pollen on them that shows they had been worn in a particular place in Te Nothing came out of that. Days turned to weeks. Weeks turned to years. And 25 years later, there is still little to go on. Except the people at the party and their stories.
3: You probably can't say this when you're a when you're serving cop, but... Um... I'd like the person responsible to be bloody hung, drawn and quartered and I'll be honest about that. I mean, I'm not one of these trendy people that have a lot of compassion towards criminals, but as I've got older, there's still that real urgency and that need for me to to find Judy and, and, and to take her home. I mean, I, yeah, the offender or offenders have become secondary to me, so.
1: Why is it that she's made such an impact on you, do you think?
3: Well, Mum and Dad, Judy had had a, a pretty tough life, and you know, and you know, she was she was a a, a, a prostitute as well, you know. But that that, that that shouldn't detract from what from what people actually achieve and actually do. And and I just knew that, hey, this girl with all her struggles in life, you know, she was a bloody good mother, and you know, someone has taken her away. From her children and and from her her mum and dad, to me, um, you know, I failed the family. You know, there's there's no easy way to put it. You know, that I I failed uh, Jane and Willie York and Tura and, and Chanel and, and Joseph by not actually you know finding their mum and and bringing her back home.
0: Actually, I'd, I have come out here once as a little kid with my grandparents. Like, like I said, they didn't talk Chanel so tells
1: me her family continued there. to search for Judy yeah. for years. At a young age, she didn't really understand what was happening, but she would go along sometimes. She remembers going back to the orchard in Matapihi as a young girl.
0: So the orchard is up around here, well, when well it was.
1: The orchard has changed since the day Judy went missing. Well, it's not an orchard anymore. The shed has since gone too. It's a patch of bare land with overgrown weeds. So when you came here with your grandparents, mm-hmm. you didn't know what was going on? They didn't tell you anything about
0: it? No, so they'd go and talk and I'd just linger around and play around in the background, not really pay attention to what the, what's going on with them. Like I said, if they were more open with me and said to me, this is why we're here, I would have been more onto it and listened, and but they'd be like, you know, send me on my way sort of thing and we'll be back soon and just, yeah. My koro used to go through drains to look for my mum. I remember him being in this drain just with his hands and like, you know, trying to drag through the ground to try and feel what he could in the sloshy, yucky drain. There were numerous drains and rivers and pits that
1: they searched. A clairvoyant took her grandparents to a place where rubbish and awful were dumped and claimed that Judy was there. Her Koto was so desperate to find his daughter, he jumped into the pit. I just remember them, my
0: name just being upset that she wasn't there. And my grandfather was just
1: reeked of old, disgusting, awful. The family believes Judy's body was dumped in the Kaituna River. A tank top was found in the river once. The family thought it could have been hers. The police don't think so. It's not far from where Chanel lives in Tepuque. She would hang out at the river with her fiance, Chiron, before he died and swim with family and friends. Chiron died on a bridge not far from their home. There are flowers there for him now. A van apparently crossed the line and clipped his bike. Sending Chiron flying onto the road, we don't know for sure. Chanel grew up without having a mother. Her daughter, Gospel, will now grow up without having a father. But she plans to do things a bit differently.
0: I want to keep his memory alive. I want her to know that her dad was this great guy. I want her to feel that connection with her dad. I'm going to do my best for her to remember her dad for what he was, not keep her shouted and keep it quiet and because I think I'm protecting her. I want her to know her dad be- because of my experience.
1: Chanel is still grieving. I ask her why she's still keen to speak to me. Maybe this time it will make a difference, she says.
0: Judy's daughter's voice, I guess, might be different than hearing the same voices all the time, listening to the same stories from the people that actually knew her. So maybe they m- might feel bad or hearing the daughter's voice might be different and they might it might touch them in a different way because they have children or grandchildren and they might step up and say something, maybe. You know, well, that's the hope.
1: They may step up. They are the people who were at the party.
3: Someone out there knows what happened to Judy York and there's more than one person that knows and really all, all it requires is Someone to come forward with you know just the the slightest bit of information and, and I don't know whether it's entirely appropriate but um, you know I've always said that I'd I'd be willing to meet anyone any time of the day or night if they were happy to to show me where where Judy is is now resting and I I, I would be happy to keep all that information confidential and of course I think if you know someone wanted to. Um, you know, come forward and and something like that. I mean, there's always the opportunity to negotiate with police in terms of immunities. The the police are always happy to approach the Solicitor-General in circumstances like this.
1: Alan Collins still has a keen interest in solving Judy's case. He was only on it for the first six months. The police officer looking after it now is John Wilson. He spent two months studying the investigation earlier this year, going through 10 boxes full of files. John tells me the most significant piece of evidence is Judy's shoes. With the passage of time and the improvement of technology, he thinks police could look at getting them tested again. Now, in terms of the uh, people in the, at the party, when's the last time police interviewed? Oh, that would, have, have, been,
4: that would have been back in the, during the investigation in '92. In there was a, a few of them, we know where they are, now and a few of them have been spoken to about various things that have come up over the years, but we haven't gone back to those people and re-interviewed them. Um, some of them, I just stress, some of the people got interviewed up to six or seven times, so it was um, you know it was it was done pretty thoroughly.
1: The case was looked at in 2008 and 2013. Why didn't the police go back to them then?
4: I don't think there's anything to be anything to be gained by that. They've told us. At the time, what they wanted to tell us, they need to reach a milestone where they decide if they've got something that's on their mind, that they know that's going to help us, that they need to come forward. And maybe me sitting here talking to you will be enough to prompt that. That's my hope.
1: Chanel does think it's worth going back to the witnesses now. Call them back up and re-interview them, she says. Chanel doesn't know who they are, except that one of them is Andrew's brother. She has never had much to do with him. I ask her, what's more important to her? Finding her mother or
0: justice? I don't want to hold a grudge because it only ends up hurting myself. You know, overthinking and getting angry over someone that murdered my mum. I'd just rather have her put to rest. Yeah. Does she feel cheated? I don't feel cheated. I understand what you're saying because I've talked about that with my partner oh Kyron before he passed away um like you know that sucks that my mum didn't get that connection with me but it's okay, you know, it's okay it happens. Yeah see I sound very heartless. It sounds really bad that I don't miss my own mum but like I am sad, don't get me wrong like for other people when they say it to me they're sad for me and I'm like but I'm not sad for me. I'm I've got a good life you know and that's just the way it is like every day we lose people that we love and we just have to accept it and move on. The morning after Kyron passed away I was still in Australia trying to get back to New Zealand and his dad was like this world has ripped you off and I was like no it hasn't and they were like they took took your mum, your nan and now your husband to be and I'm like it's okay, it's
1: just the way it is, you know? Yeah. Everyone agrees that someone out there knows something. Someone knows what happened to Judy. Someone knows where she is. Maybe that someone is you. This podcast has been created and hosted by me, Paloma Migoni. Technical production by Phil Benj. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can see video and photos by Rebecca Parsons-King at RNZ.co.nz, which drill into some of the issues raised in this podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Lost on iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, please don't forget to rate and review us so others can find this series. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in other real-life podcasts from RNZ, try Eyewitness, which gives you a take on moments in history from those who were there when it happened. And next week, we look at the story of Jim Donnelly, a father of two who went to work at the Glenbrook Steel Mill in Auckland and was never seen again.